So welcome along to another Sermon Expanded for this, which is dealing with Sunday the 9th of September. And we began on that day uh, a new series looking through the book of Genesis. We're going to look through the book of Genesis from now until beginning of December when Advent starts. And then we'll look at some things for Advent and then we'll go on to another gospel in the, in the new year. But what we do is to start these series to, to look at a passage over the course of time so that you can get acquainted with it so you can maybe read parts that you haven't read before and the purpose of these podcasts sermon expanded series is that we don't get to touch on a lot of things in church and on this sunday past we had a family communion so we invited all our families all ages to come and have communion with us which took up a a huge chunk of our service and so i was left with a, a short period of time to talk about this first passage which is creation passage creation in the fall and so it's good that we have these and this we could have this technology it's good to have this that we can maybe look at some other things which is what I'm going to do this morning and on this episode to try and help you think a little bit through or uh, this morning actually to help you think well how do I look at the bible how do I read it through what lens through what eyes what way do I interpret it what way do I take some of these passages that may be strange or new to me what way do I think about them and how does that reflect then God and who God is there are a couple of others that I'm going to throw at some stage out because there's a couple of words that we were doing over the course of the summer we weren't in a book as such we were looking at different words there was a couple of those that I didn't get time to do and so in the midst of this series in the midst of these podcasts I'm going to throw those out and so you can look at those anytime as well it's always on Podbean it's always on iTunes it'll be you can get it through Facebook as well so they'll always be there for you or get in touch and we can point them to you or send them to you again this is going to be a heavy one this is going to be a difficult one because the story of creation in Genesis 1 has all kinds of understanding and all kinds of opinions related to it, all kinds of questions that come with it. And so what I'm going to do for a little while is a lot of reading, a lot of reading through some different views of it, some different approaches to it, some different myths and rituals to do with it. Um, And hopefully as we get to the end, you'll see that there is a broad range. There are lots of different perspectives, there are lots of different understandings and that isn't meant to overwhelm you that's meant to actually make you think about it and go oh well yes i can i can see a little bit of that and i can see a little bit of number five but number one or two i just don't get that at all but that helps us see that there are lots of different opinions we don't have to be afraid if we have a slightly different opinion to somebody else or some other group it's it's okay to have uh, a slightly different opinion i'm trying to choose my words carefully this morning um and so what i'll do is i'll go through some of those uh, and hopefully then we'll talk a little bit about that at the end i'm not going to read through genesis one creation or two or, or in fact we're dealing with the fall as well which is in chapter three if you have time if you want to pause this even for a few minutes and read that through for yourselves you probably will have heard it a lot of times you might have read it a number of times if you tried to go through the bible in a year genesis is always a good place to start and so you might have begun in the beginning which is the very first verse of genesis chapter 1 verse 1 in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So many questions in there even before we get out of verse 2. 
But the story of creation goes on in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, each day, each time there's God creates, brings forth, uh, and then that is the ultimate climax of that, is the creation of man and woman in chapter 2. Uh, and we're going to deal with that before we think about the fall and what that means to us. But I'm going to do that through... Um, some of my university notes, actually, I, I went and I searched through the the drawers that I have these in and found some of my old notes. And so I'm basically going to read through this. These aren't my words. These are words that have been compiled over a period of time. Some of them are my words, actually, so I'll, I'll take credit for those. Um, but the rest have been picked and put together, and many probably by my lecturers. And it really starts in the question of how do we look around, how do we view this creation? That's probably where the point that we all come from. When we look around, how do we explain what we see? How do we piece it together with our experience? How do we piece it together with science? How do we piece it together with the Bible? How do we put all of this information together to come to something that we can stand on firmly, stand on with confidence, maybe even stand on with openness to other ideas and other opinions. And probably in the modern era, that's been become more relevant with science uh, and science explaining so much. And so I will start. The subject of creation versus science will always be a theme for many discussions. Even amongst Christians, the subject rages and often people's orthodoxy which means their kind of closeness to the truth of God of thought or, or thought of in terms of how they view this subject of creation. And so, and even the more strict how they view creation and the Bible versus science. And so people can be judged upon how they view creation because for some, how they view creation shows how they view the entire Bible. And that, that is true. How we view creation does indeed affect how we view the rest of the Bible, how we take it and interpret and use it. Um, instead of looking at creation versus science in the broadest term, in this we're going to look at the views of creation and Christianity and how they interact in their own right against science. There are many views. The first and most strict view is that of creationists. They believe that the story of creation has been written in a particular way and that every word is to be believed as correct. If there are doubts or queries about any part of the creation story, then these doubts are false, as the Bible is the word of God and could never be wrong. In the area of science, if the thoughts put forward by science do not match those of the creation story in Genesis, then science is wrong. As an example of this, through the study of the genealogies in Genesis, the Archbishop of Armagh, not recently, many years ago, worked out that the date of creation was 4004 BC. Of course, now scientists have dated the Earth to be millions of years old, and so here there is some conflict. The creationists take a literal interpretation of Genesis, so reading it exactly as it says, and say that any other interpretation must be wrong. There's a scholar called Macintosh who says that there's no evidence of anything other than a literal interpretation and if any other interpretation is presented then the whole resurrection falls like a stack of dominoes. Your whole faith, everything falls with it. When this is argued against there are several issues. Firstly there's the record of fossils. These scholars would argue that what is called appearance of age theory this is when God created everything such as the trees, he created them with rings. When he created man, man was of age instead of being ours old. There is in all creation an appearance of age, even though it has only been created. 
They argue that there are fossils at the top of Everest, leading us to the next argument, which is about the flood. I'm going to skip over that one. And so the creationists believe in this literal interpretation of all. They do not have much time for science and maintain that this understanding that all of Genesis has to be interpreted literally. The problem with this is that to answer all the questions that science puts forward means that creationists have to add a lot of details that aren't mentioned in the book of Genesis itself. Surely then if the narrator of Genesis thought that these were important points to add value, surely he would have added them. A more lenient view of creation is called gap theory. Uh, it's also known as a concordist approach, which means that it is an approach which tries to maintain a balance between what is said in Genesis and what science is trying to say to us. To do this, the gap theory suggests that yes, the interpretation of Genesis can be taken literally, but there are gaps in it to allow a certain sense of space. This theory believes that Genesis is actually a scientific account of the recreation of the earth. They believe that Satan as a fallen angel came to earth and effectively destroyed all that there was, leaving it void and without form. The account then in Genesis is the recreation of this Satan-destroyed world. Again, to be believed, this is some major instances that are not mentioned. A big part of it is left out and to be believed, you would think again that the narrator would include this tiny detail. That's irony, sarcasm there, just in case you didn't pick that up. Another theory is called the day or age theory. This theory surmises that the days do not have to be 24 hours because God is not limited to time and to space and therefore these days do not have to be 24 hours. The word here that is used in the Hebrew for the word day can also refer to an era or a period of time. And so these days, I, sorry I, I did inverted commas there with my hands that you'll not see, but these Days and in inverted commas of creation can actually be seen as eras of creation beyond our understanding. This is another theory, as a uh, concordist theory, as it allows a lot of what science would state to be slotted into these era, uh, eras without affecting a literal reading of the text. There's another option. Another theory is called the Days of Revelation. This was put forward by a scholar named Wiseman who believes that God would have revealed the story of creation to the narrator of who wrote the book of Genesis over the period of six days. No one was there at creation and so this story was given to the narrator to write over the period of six days. This would be much like the last book of the Bible of Revelation in, in a way, but as often this theory is often abandoned very quickly which, without much thought. Another theory is called the literary theory. This theory is more concerned with what literary style is being dealt with. It recognises that there are different styles of writing and that this story of creation is not a scientific account of what happened at creation, but is a story of a creator god. Much of this is based around the use of the language of myths and cultures of the time. There was a lot of myths about monsters at the time and in the story of Genesis is a lot of similar languages used as is used in the myths. In effect, it surmises that the narrator of, or writer is writing to say that God of the God of Israel created the monsters in your myths and they pose no threat to him. It is simply using the myth language as literary genre so readers could associate more with it. It also uses a lot of anthropomisms. Anthropomisms? Anthropomisms. 
you can say it whatever way you like, which means language used about God's actions in a way that man will understand. In effect, this theory presents that it is not a scientific writing, but a literary... Oh my, I just can't talk this morning. A literature style, a literary that style, I should say. And the findings of science cannot be used against Genesis as Genesis is simply telling a story. This will be a good test to see how much you're listening, who tells me that I'm making these mistakes. I'm going to come back to that in a little while because I have some of those myths to share with you and let you see. Um, and we'll come on to those shortly. The, this links on to the, another theory which is called the cultural perspective theory. It's hard to keep up, I know, but just bear with us. In the same way as the literary, the cultural theory recognises that this story was written to people t over 2,000 years ago and cannot be taken as a scientific document but as a cultural story. In the same way as the literary theory, the language used would be for those reading in that culture or hearing in that culture. They say that the sun, moon and stars are not mentioned by name simply because these are things that would have been worshipped in those times. Genesis is again saying that the God of Israel created these things and you are worshipping the created thing rather than the creator. Again, this is shown in the actual Hebrew verb to create. It is used very sparingly throughout Genesis in the first few verses, then again when humans are created and then again for sea monsters. Now, why would those be mentioned or used specifically here? This theory suggests that the verb is used here because they specifically want the readers to think about the mythical stories of such sea monsters and realise that the God of Israel has created all these and that they are not no effect on his creation. Myths like this were rife around the ancient uh, Near East, which is that area of the time, the ancient Near Eastern stories such as the Babylonian Enuma Elish, um, which I'll mention in a minute. Such were the stories about the ancient Near East and the cultural perspective is exactly, is exactly that. It is written for the people of that time so that they may be able to draw comparisons to the mythological stories of the day. I have some of those here. It's in a book called The Myth and Ritual of Creation. Um, the Egyptian Conception of Creation. Fast, like I, I love these. I've written a book called Remember How It Goes. And in the first passage it deals with some of these. And the Enuma Elish. Because this for me when I was studying this. When I was thinking about this. Just fascinated me. I, I loved it. And so we have the Egyptian Conception of Creation. And these are some of these are bunkers. We, we all have our, our stories of how it would happen. If you were to ask somebody how they think the world came to be, everyone will have a theory, everyone will have a story, everyone will have something they come up with. And it was no different back in the ancient Near East at this time. So the Egyptian, in the Egyptian era, the Egyptians, not the era, the culture at that time, they approached creation from the standpoint of human experience and interpreted the initial events as a series of births in the realms of the gods, beginning with a primeval pair who proceeded from an existing state of watery chaos, very reflective of the Nile, which was a, a source of life for the Egyptians. And so we have these Egyptian gods who are created um, basically out of a state of watery chaos. Um, the many forms which creator gods assumed in Egyptian mythology was doubtless the result of an earlier cult of an all-embracing sky god as the supreme being brought in a conjunction with the very ancient solar worship in its several manifestations. And so there's this watery chaos that starts the Egyptian creation. The Heliopolitan 
According to the Heliopolitan mythology, the sun god existed alone in Nun, which is this primeval ocean, uh, primeval ocean, which they refer to as the Nun, and had sexual union with himself in order to create Shu, which was the pers- personification of the atmosphere. I'm, I'm not making this up. This is actually written. This sun god had sexual union with himself in order to create the personification of the atmosphere, and Tefnut, the goddess of moisture, these in turn produced Geb, the earth god, and not the sky goddess, from whom sprang Osiris and his sister Spice Isis, Seth and his sister Nephthys, who was also his consort. And so you have these bungers sorts of gods, these nine gods together, who make up the great Ennead of Heliopolis and constitute the most important family of gods in the creation story, who all begin to create out of themselves. That was the Egyptian was the first, the Heliopolitan was the second, the Babylonian was this Enuma Elish that we had mentioned. In Babylonian creation, which is an epic, the matrix consisted of sweet waters personified as Apsu, the primeval male mingled with the saltwater ocean, Tiamat, his female consort. They produce for themselves a sun, Mumu, um, representing the mist and clouds arising from the watery chaos. We have then the birth of another two gods, Lamu and Lahamu, as brother and sister, followed by another pair called Ansar and Kishar, who in course produced themselves the sky god, Anu, and then Enki, the lord of the land, and E, the god of waters and wisdom, supreme among his fellow gods. There's a riotous behaviour that starts amongst these younger divinities and became a disturbing influence, again I'm reading this, for their parents and grandparents who, acting on the advice of Mumu, determined to destroy the root and branch and get rid of these younger gods when they are tried to be eliminated. E makes a magic circle around Apsu and his allies, rendering them helpless by a spell, slows him, imprisons Mumu and assumes leadership. Since Tiamat had not been party to the proposed massacre, she was left alone. E then took up his abode in a shrine, and his son Marduk was born of Damkinai, his wife, and was destined to become the wisest of the gods, omnipotent in magical power. There's uh, a rising up uh, of other gods then. Um, there's another god, uh, Ansar proposed that Mordek should be sent to vanquish Tiamat and her brood to get rid of all of them. It's like Game of Thrones, just in the gods. And so setting out to meet his adversary, King Who, and his forces. King Who is... Um, let me go back. I'm trying to find King Who. Um, King Who is... Just find it. King Who is the second husband of Tiamat. She's obviously got rid of the first and come on to King Who, and so King Who um, was sent to come out as Tiamat was left alone, calling down vengeance upon um, E, uh, as she opened her mouth to devour him in an evil wind to keep her jaws extended, that he might shoot an arrow through them straight into her heart, and did that, like David triumphing over Goliath, he stood upon her corpse, and as her followers fled, they were caught up in the net. From King Hu he appropriated the Tablet of Destinies and bound him. Returning to Tiamat, he split her body into two parts to create the universe. With one half he formed the sky and with the other he fashioned the earth. In the upper celestial firmament he installed the triad, Anu, Ilhil and I in their respective domains. And on it goes. Just 
quite a quite an epic, really was an epic. So that's the Babylonian, the Sumerian myths of origin. There's no single myth known about what actually describes the creation of the universe, but from the introductory passages uh, to a poem called Gilgamesh, Enkidu in the Netherworld, and the creation of the pickaxe. Random. It appears that the goddess Namu, the primeval ocean, gave birth to the universe, heaven and earth, at first being united as a vast cosmic mountain until they were separated by Enlil, the air god. Then Anu, the sun god, carried off heaven while Enlil carried off the earth, which was his mother and later identified with the goddess Nimha. So there you go. So basically this cultural perspective theory is saying that into all these stories, into all these myths and rituals, into the midst of this, we have this creation narrative that is written to say basically all of this. You think that this is the way it happens. You think that these myths can describe what goes on. Well, here is the true myth about the God of Israel who created all such things and and all of these stand for nothing and will claim nothing against him so there are the number of approaches the number of theories whether you pin your hat on one that's fine whether you pin your hat on all seven or eight that's totally fine if you're totally confused by them that's totally fine there are all sorts, there are all ways of looking at it, and we cannot, we can't, we should not say that one is definitely right. There are holes in the mall, there are joys in the mall, there are ways in which we can see life being put forward from the mall, and there are ways that we can try and deepen our understanding from them all. And so, Creation for me, the start of the book of Genesis for me, isn't about getting to the bottom of which interpretation is right. It's not about getting to the bottom of, of how can we prove this or how can we stand against science in this, but rather how can we use science to help us. C.S. Lewis described science as taking things apart to see how they work and faith as putting things together to see what they mean. And so for me, that's something that's been hugely important. It's not about taking this story apart to see the very exact ways that it works, but actually finding out what it means through it all. And so on Sunday, we simply looked at one of the words that's repeated in this little passage, which is the word good. In Hebrew, it's the word tov, which actually means perfection. I don't know if the word good, I think in our culture, in our society nowadays, has lost a lot of its meaning. Good is, is actually more like average. We have other words to describe things that are excellent or amazing or wonderful. Goods just kind of down there in the middle bracket. Whereas God described this as being perfection. He created it exactly how he intended it to be. He created it in the way he wanted it to be. And that then moves on to the third part of our story, our third passage, which was Genesis chapter 3, which was the fall. He had given people this Adam and Eve or mankind, if you want to see it in another way. Um, the word Hadam means mankind. Um, he had given mankind, Adam and Eve, in this approach, this wonderful earth, this creation to maintain and to look after, to care for and, and to multiply into. And through a series of selfish acts, they break, they destroy, they go against 
what they were intended to do and to be. They give in to this temptation. They give in to this uh, desire for control and power and knowledge. And they find themselves that they destroy it in many ways. And that's kind of where we're left. If we were to look at those three passages, that's where we're left. We're left where God, in a sense, drives out mankind out of this garden into the, the world that we see. And if we take this as a literary genre, if we take this as a literalist approach, we, we take it as it's written. If we take it as a literary, literary theory, which is the other end, or a cultural perspective theory, we have essentially three passages that say, well, this is how we ended up where we are. This is how we came to be to this place. It, it must have been perfect, must have been amazing and wonderful and good because we see those elements of beauty in all of it around us. We all have those moments when we look and see that this creation is, is good and perfect and beautiful and wonderful and amazing. We go to those places, we fly to those far off lands and see it in creation. We see it in the things that happen around us. And so there are elements of it there, but somehow there are also those elements of darkness of trouble of strife of oppression of injustice of hate there are those things in our own lives that we see affecting us that tell us that this isn't the way it, it should be there's something wrong with this there's something that has happened and in fact this story explains how that goes what happened it's a way of this cultural this group this culture 2000 plus years ago saying well this this is how we came to this point this is how we ended up here this is why some things are amazing and wonderful and beautiful and yet others are horrendous and difficult and wrong and dark. This is how we came to this place. This God that we believe in, this faith that we have, enables us to say, well, this is the way that God would have created. This is the way that God brought this forth. This is the beauty that he made in it. This is how he answers all those other myths that surround us in our surrounding cultures. And yet this is what happened to to show us where we got to this place. So there's a few accounts. There's a few things to think about. There's maybe some encouragement for you that if you felt that you were standing on a, an interpretation or an opinion that didn't go with the way you have been told it should, if you are thinking in the way that others aren't, that's fine. In fact, I would say that's good. I would say that's perfect. That's the way it should be. We have these masses of theories. We have, I'll count them this time. We have one, two, three, four, five, six. I thought it was one up. We have these six theories, some which disappeared pretty quickly, some which were ignored and abandoned without much thought. But that was his theory. That was the way he explained it to be. And that is probably what he stuck his guns to. And so that's okay. That's fine. None of us can be corrected when it comes to that. But it helps show us how we look at the rest of the Bible. How we hold it. Because often some people hold it so tightly that if we don't believe exactly what it says, the whole thing falls apart. Whether, whereas others are, are simply able to hold it loosely and say, this is what it helps me see. This is how it helps me live my life this is how it, it shows me what to do it may be different to yours but that's okay 
it may actually help me see other things that you can't see and there are all sorts of people in between oh one thing oh i should do this one thing that comes in a lot and i know this is going on a little while i didn't intend it to go this long but i've i know i've done a lot of reading evolution whenever we come to creation often evolution comes up as well and so i just want to read a couple of things there are a couple of approaches again to this um there is, of course, the creationist, the literalists, who will reject evolution completely because it is incompatible with many of the details of the creation story, such as the creation of Adam and Eve, because Adam and Eve are created. And so the, the statement that humans are made in the image of God emphasizes the difference between them and animals, whereas evolution emphasizes continuity. There's a scholar called Ham who argues that Christians who believe in theistic evolution probably haven't thought through the logical implications of their position. He argues that evolution contradicts the clear unequivocal statements in Genesis about Adam and Eve and the origins of sin and death, saying, The Bible clearly teaches that when God created Adam and Eve, the world was perfect. There was no death and bloodshed, but because of the sin of Adam, God brought death as a judgment into the world. Of course, he provided a means by which man could be reconciled to his creator. But if you believe in evolution, you believe that God used death and bloodshed over millions of years as a way to bring man into existence. This actually destroys the foundation of the gospel message. The answer is in Genesis. There's no room for evolution in the Bible. But there is the other side. In spite of the ferocious attacks on this theistic evolution, which it is termed, it is still accepted by many scholars who argue that God could use an evolutionary process as a part of his method in creating the world, an approach called and known as this theistic evolution. There's a... Um, sorry, advocates of this approach are often scientists who see no conflict between their profession involvement in evolutionary theory and their Christian faith in the creator God. One such advocate, R.J. Berry, states his position clearly saying... As a scientist, I have no doubt whatsoever that evolutionary change has occurred and that its mechanism is along the lines described by neo-Darwinian theory. As a Christian, I am equally confident that God created the world and everything in it and that all holds together in him. The Genesis account of creation is of progress from nothing, or more strictly, God only, through geological and biological change to humankind. Nowhere in the Bible are we told the mechanisms God used to carry out this work. Indeed, it is only by faith that we know that God is involved. And so there are others who support this theistic evolution that at some stage God entered and created the first human being in this image. They say that the first evidence of spiritual activity from archaeological is in a Neolithic city of Catalhuyuk, C-A-T-A-L-H-U-Y-U-K, pronounce it whatever way you want. If Adam and Eve were the first Neolithic human beings and the first to be truly human, this theory accepts that the earth at that time was inhabited by others who were like them physically. This would explain Cain's fears about being killed if he was forced away from his own society. It also explains how he had no problem finding a wife. Not through Tinder. The theory of evolution will continue to be hotly debated and the purpose of this is to set out as clearly as possible the two opposing views and that debate will of course continue. And that is the truth of it that none of us totally know. We can't say yes for definite in one or the other because we have our own expressions, our own opinions, our own approaches, many which come from 
experience, many which come from the way in which we hold the Bible and view the Bible. And through Genesis, we'll see some more of that. But hopefully that has been helpful in some way, if not only to encourage you that if you're thinking in some way, that's that's totally fine. That's OK. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to hold an opposing view to someone else. It's debated in scholarly circles. And so in everyday life, it will be debated there as well. And so as you read that, as you look at that, my brothers and sisters, may you know the God within it, the God who is above our understanding, the God who creates more than we could create. Uh, and to give you some encouragement at the end of this episode, may you know the good that was there in the midst of it. May you know the role of the Christian through Jesus and the Christian church as us as his people to help in the reordering of this world, our homes, our workplaces, our societies into the way God intends them to be, that perfection that he seeks them to be. God brought back from the dead, Jesus, the impossible made possible so that in every situation where we see the impossible, God sees what is possible. The Bible says that it was good and it says it shall be good and we have the privilege to work for that good. And so do that in whatever way he has gifted you and whatever way he has given you and don't be afraid to go after what you see and what you believe and what you know. If anybody has any questions, you can contact me at jwfraser at presbyterianireland.org or reply through Facebook or Podbean or iTunes or any of those things or come along some Sunday morning. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at Noah and a flood. So that's another interesting one that we'll be thinking about and I'll have a podcast again out for you next week. But grace and peace, my brothers and sisters.